Canada has welcomed the digital economy like few other countries, but we're still reliant on physical identity documents to access government services or complete high-value transactions. Interact is working to address this gap and make a secure, convenient, and private-enhancing digital ID ecosystem a reality for Canadians. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, April 12th. I've got Shannon Pravot of McLean's and David Reevely of the Canadian Press here with me in studio. Hi to you both. Hi. Good morning. So how was your week? Good? Yeah. I mean, it feels like, as usual, it was I about know. two weeks, it but they were two, two weeks. good weeks. Two, two, yeah, two <laughs> decent weeks yeah. since last Friday. Yeah. At least it's not a blizzard out there today. Yeah. That's true. Spring of spring. It's supposed to be um, patio weather. Well, they keep saying patio. Yeah, like 14 tomorrow. Any weather is patio weather, yeah, if it's you ask true. me. Anyway. Okay, so we're going to hop right into it. First up, while many were, were hoping, thinking, and perhaps hoping that SNC-Lavalin affair had been put to bed after both Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould were booted from caucus last week, the Prime Minister decided to add a final little uh, drizzle of fuel to the story. On Sunday, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer revealed that the Prime Minister's lawyer had threatened to sue him for libel over s- some of his uh, language when used when discussing the SNC-Lavalin controversy, particularly that Scheer uh, accused him of breaking the law, um, which hasn't been proven and, in fact, was you know reinforced by Jody Wilson-Raybould in her testimony that the law hadn't been broken, to her knowledge. Anyway, Sheer responded with a big fat "Bring it on," um, saying something along the lines of, "You know, if you do, we're gonna have we're gonna be able to open this case right up, and we'll see all the hidden evidence um, that's that's been hidden from Canadians." Um, and and Sheer's lawyer went so far as to say in the the follow up notice, "Quote: If the Prime Minister does not." commence the lawsuit he has threatened, Mr. Scheer will conclude that the Prime Minister has properly acknowledged that Mr. Scheer's statements were appropriate and grounded in evidence before the Canadian people. Many Conservative MPs took to Twitter to express their outrage, most notably, and we can count on her for this, Michelle Rempel. She tweeted out saying, um, this is part of a, a long thread, You literally have no judgment. Suing the leader of the opposition for doing his job, it's so dumb it disqualifies you for leading a G7 democracy uh, in and of itself. But despite the shock and amaze she had, it's actually something that's not that unusual. It's happened a few times before. Yeah, Stephen Harper uh, threatened to sue Stéphane Dion for libel. It has happened in Ontario as well. Uh, This is going back a few years, but Kathleen Wynne threatened to sue Tim Hudak, who was then leader of the opposition progressive conservatives for libel as well, in the lead up to an election. Uh, I mean, I think the idea is generally to kind of draw a line. To say, look, there, there is political argument. We disagree. We disagree nastily sometimes, but when you accuse someone of criminality... Right, that uh, crosses the line. That, yeah, or of being a liar. There's a right. reason why you can't call somebody a liar in the House of Commons, even when they are flagrantly lying, yeah. but it is considered beyond the, the, the beyond the pale, beyond something that, that the, the bounds of, of reasonable discussion. Yeah. And so if you're going to say I'm a crook and you can't prove that I'm a crook, then I'm going to bring suit. Yeah. And make you stop saying it. 
And I'm going to set the precedent here that if you do that again, we're we're going to have words. We're going to have words. So yeah, Jean Chrétien had done it. I mean, it's happened a lot, uh, many times on both sides of the aisle. Um, all have been dropped, right? I think all had been. I don't think it, there's one that's actually gone through, from what I've read. They tend not to. They no. tend not to. Yeah, certainly settlements and. <clears throat> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Or, <laughs> right. Or right. just agreeing. I, I mean, very often an election intervenes, yes. and then whatever it was doesn't matter nearly as much anymore. And right. So it ends up, they, these things peter out. Yeah. This one uh, doesn't look like it's going to do that quite so readily. I mean, anyway. the only thing that confused me a little bit is that, like, you would think that the liberals would really want to put an end to this this story, right? And and so by doing this, it does open it up a little bit more for further further conversation around uh, around the situation and I mean I don't know where are we with this has he um has Trudeau agreed to to go forward or has he has he put forward an ultimatum he's sort of studiously avoided committing one way or the other that was sort of the the big drama in question period on Wednesday was sort of this very it was kind of striking like this very overt like bring it on and like just the two of them going back and forth, Sheer and Trudeau, um, Sheer kind of very bluntly made the point that he was not intimidated by repeating verbatim the statement he had made that Trudeau's lawyer complained about in the first place outside the house so that he was mm. trying to sort of make the symbolic point he wasn't hiding behind parliamentary privilege. He read it with great relish. He mentioned about 117 times in QP on Wednesday. I just repeated that just outside. So mm. if you want to get upset about it, please go ahead. So for Sheer and the Conservatives, I think this is a bit of a gift. I mean, mm. you can you can debate the propriety, as Michelle Rempel did, of the Prime Minister suing the leader of the opposition for chirping at him, which through some lenses is the job of the leader of the opposition. That's right. yep. But as political strategy, this seems a bit debatable because there it did it did have this feeling that the SNC Lavalin conflagration was sort of slowly being deprived of oxygen and we were getting to the kind of like embers in the bonfire stage. Right. And then this kind of was like a bell was revving it all back up again. It's given it fresh life. This and the play there actually really was on the part of the conservatives because the letter was dated the end of right. March, and the caucus expulsions didn't happen until after that. And Sheer kind of oh, sat on right, it for a right, while. Right. So that was strategic on their part, yeah, to release it yeah, afterwards. Clever timing on a Sunday when you know Parliament really was not making a ton hmm. of news, but out came Sheer saying Prime Minister is threatening to sue me, By and way, uh, yeah. if he wants to go, I'm, uh, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. <gasps> and the, the thing about the Cases. I mean, this is a this is what's called a notice of libel, so, you know, listing out the defamatory statements in the prime minister's view. And I, I mean, the the truth is that I don't think there is evidence of criminality of law breaking in this. Even Jody Wilson Raybould, who is the victim uh, by some lights, d- said specifically that she thinks the way she was treated was inappropriate, but not, not illegal. illegal. Yeah. So if they did go chasing that through court, I, I mean, I don't think that that little element of it would necessarily end well for the conservatives right. unless there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. But that's the trick. If you go to court, there's this process of discovery, which is essentially both sides getting access to all the relevant evidence. And that is what the conservatives are saying yeah. they would dearly yeah, love to do. Dearly love to do. Yeah, it could be a case where they lose the battle but win the war there, even yeah. if, if a case were to proceed and it was found that that specific statement of Shears was offside. 
how much more of a treasure trove of stuff are they yeah. assuming is going to come tumbling yeah. out in court? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the, I think that's what they want. And that's why they're saying, bring it on. How fast can we get this in front of a judge? Let's go, let's go, Like let's the go. glee yeah. on Wednesday and QP did not look feigned to me. There's days when they kind of have these rictus grins Ugh. and they're sort of like Sheer was having himself a fine old time. He was having a afternoon. fine time. Um, and then on Tuesday, now independent MP Jane Philpott raised yet another related issue in the House. She said that the Prime Minister had wrongfully kicked her and her fellow independent colleague Jody Wilson-Raybould out of caucus. The two were removed last week by the Prime Minister with uh, majority consensus from Liberal MPs. She claimed that he needed to uh, a group vote to do uh, a majority vote to do what he had done, and by not doing so, he broke the law and ultimately denied them their privileges as MPs. So, after some digging by journalists and 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 pushback from liberals um it was and we talked about this bit last week it was revealed that the liberal caucus had opted out of the expulsion rule that requires a vote to remove a member um sorta sorta yeah this well, this the, gets this into is, the weeds this, so this is very complex because we did talk about go this weed last plundering, yeah. david do <laughs> it go, go put on your yeah, yeah. look, this was, look who i'm talking to <laughs> this was first presented or authored by Michael Chong. Chong. Yes, Conservative MP Michael Chong, and passed by the House of Commons before the last election. And as I understand it, the the Parliament of Canada Act uh, says that after each election, each caucus of each party caucus has to have a series of votes on whether to adopt certain rules that are set out in the Parliament of Canada Act about how they're going to conduct themselves. One of which is will we use this set of rules as spelled out in the law for kicking somebody out? And then another one is, will we use a different set of rules for allowing them back in? And they can say no. They can vote against using those rules and continue using whatever Mm loosey-goosey set of practices they've had all this time, which is, you know, the custom of decades. But they have to have a vote one way or the other. And what Phil Pott said, and it is a subtle point, is that, the Liberals did not have such a vote, and so all of them have been operating with uncertainty as to what rules govern their continued presence in caucus. She and Jody Wilson-Raybould asked the caucus chair, who's a Quebec MP, Francis Carpeleggia, repeatedly before they were kicked out what process they might be facing and did not get answers, she said. And so the argument is that given that there's been this vacuum since the last election, that their privileges, their rights as MPs had been violated on on kind of an ongoing basis, except it didn't matter up until now. Theirs and every other Liberal MPs, because no such vote was taken by the Liberals. Okay, so either way, there was not a, a, yeah, okay, I get what you're saying. The Liberals' argument, and Scarpaleggia said this the other day, uh, is that they decided to refer this matter because it was more than uh, the caucus should decide to a party convention, and in the process kind of never dealt with it, and he at some point sent a letter to the Speaker, as is required by the legislation, saying that, in effect, they were deeming that they had chosen not to adopt. By not. By not having a vote. vote. And the Speaker said, I got his communication, as is required by law, and that's my only role, is to receive this communication. It's not my job to go digging into, I have no authority to go digging into exactly how they reached it. If the law was broken, there are no penalties for it. It's just they didn't so do it. weird. Yeah. And, and Jane Philpott has since said in interviews, because the obvious question is, 
well, do you want back in? Like this was in the mm-hmm. interim before mm-hmm. the speaker, mm-hmm. Jeff Regan, kind of ruled on this and, and sort of said, this isn't my purview. The obvious question was like, why Why are you raising this yeah. now? Surely right. you don't want to go back into that toxic room. And and she, she quite, like, I, I don't think she overtly said, no, you're right. Of course I don't want back in. She said that this is a matter of principle. And mm. it sort of seems like she's she was pointing to a broader dynamic that she saw as problematic with um, the leader wielding too much power and yeah. individual MPs not having as much power. So she is saying, I think much like she said in her resignation from cabinet, that this is a matter of principle. It's not that she really wants back in that room. It's right. that she feels the process here was was unfair and points to a larger set of problems that she would like to raise. Now, you could also... Obviously, people could and have read this as sour grapes and attempting to, you know, drag the prime minister Mm -hmm. back and forth again in public. Um, Those are the possible interpretations. But uh, at least on the surface, she has said it's a matter of principle. And and I think the criticism, the obvious criticism is, hey, if this is a matter of principle, it's funny how this principle didn't matter for nearly four years. I was just about to say that. That Yeah, They were members of the caucus that vote, you know, chose, didn't vote, chose not to have a vote and never kind of got back around to it. And now that it's happened to you. Yeah. Oh, and now it's a problem. Yeah. We're just in a weird sort of gray zone now. We don't really know what's going to happen next. Okay. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know if there's anything to happen here. Like it kind of, it, it was sort of a... Well, an effort or a new front this week that's yeah. kind of sort of died out for now. Mm. I mean, I don't know where you go from here. Yeah, like, Regan I mean, like, has sort of said, this is not for me to rule on. Caucuses conduct themselves. Your privilege was not breached. Mm-hmm. Phil Pot obviously is not satisfied but doesn't particularly want back in. So it kind of just is what it, it is at this moment. I think the consequence is at the ballot box. Is yeah, it, if exactly. You, if you as a voter feel like you're not happy with the way right. this went and this matters to you, then you get to take your anger out right. in a few months. Okay, moving along. So the Alberta election campaign is ramping up. We're now just a few days away from when voters will hit the polls. It's it's um, the election is is next Tuesday, the sixteenth. Um, it's a tight. Would you call it a tight race? I mean, the the front runners, the incumbent leader of the NDP, uh, Rachel Notley, is sort of going head to head with the United Cons- uh, Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney, who's at this point leading the polls. I think the last poll I saw was something like. Twenty-eight percent to thirty-seven percent, something around that kind of right. gap. They have been they around, have been closing been bouncing. it a little, but I think the the last thing I saw the CBC poll tracker, the kind of distillation of all the polls out there, had ninety-nine percent certainty of Oof, a UCP yeah. majority and one percent for not. So I mean, okay. for what that's worth, unless that trajectory drastically changes, right. that sort of looks like a pretty looks. clear outcome. But weird things happen in politics mm-hmm. all the time. And it was and it was a last election, twenty fifteen. I don't think anyone was expecting that outcome, but or or at least a majority uh, NDP. There's a lot of uh, of talk, of course, uh, around the plummeting economy, um, as there was in 2015, and uh, and of course pipeline concerns. Whether this thing's going to get built, and who's the leader that can most likely get it built. Um, hearing more commentary, though, and I find this interesting, um, in that. There is this expectation that Kenny being elected would guarantee approval of, you know, feds or, or getting a pipeline. But it's actually not necessarily the case, given that he would probably roll back a lot of their climate tax provisions and emissions targets and whatnot. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic there. Yeah, I and mean, the trouble here is just wanting it. Albertans really wanting it is not enough to actually get it done. Yeah. It has, it's a pipeline that goes west has to go through BC, and the federal government can 
with certain restrictions, pretty much bulldoze opposition in British Columbia. But British Columbia politically is a volatile place that, you know, sometimes goes NDP, sometimes Mm -hmm. goes liberal, sometimes elects a lot of conservatives. Uh, and that makes it difficult for any federal party to say, well, yeah. the heck with British Columbians, we're driving this pipeline through. Yeah. Trudeau is not really in a position to do it, politically speaking, but uh, Prime Minister Andrew Scheer, unless he's got a giant majority and is willing to sacrifice massive numbers of votes in BC, mm-hmm. it's hard to see how he could do it either. Right. And there's the matter of Indigenous consultations, which are not a matter of politics. That's a matter of the Constitution. Right. And the Western Pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline has already been held up by the feds not doing what the judges thought was a suitable job of consulting with indigenous communities. So this is not, not, it's not so much a matter of political will. Political will is necessary here, but it's not. It's not a sure thing either way. Do you think that in general, people just trust a conservative government more than an NDP government when it comes to the economy and pipeline concerns? Like, is that just the general case or is it that the economy is shitty right now in Alberta? Um, so no matter what, the incumbent party is just going to take the heat for that. Well, there's a, there seems to be a really strong there's there's a huge kind of disparate sense of frustration with the Alberta economy right now, yeah. and that seems to be sort of crystallizing in antipathy toward Ottawa. And Kenny is very specifically trying to capitalize on that. Like that is he's almost fighting a proxy war, right? He's packaging Notley and Trudeau together. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say perhaps because he sees it that way or perhaps because that's very electorally advantageous for him. Um, so he's trying to cast them as sort of being on the same team that she's she claimed to be fighting for Alberta, but after four years, what do we have to show for it? You know, our economy is tanking. We can't get our oil to markets. She's too cozy with him. I am going to put my dukes up and in I go. And, and he's sort of mm. leveraging all these very specific policy proposals that are very... Um, I don't know what the word is, like very oppositional. Yeah. Um, he's sort of kind of hearkening back to the Alberta firewall letter of 2001, you know, in part authored by one Stephen Harper. Um, it sort of feels like this hilarious throwback. Um, and he's 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 proposing all sorts of very um, kind of blunt measures, like a, a referendum within Alberta yeah. on equalization that is seen as sort of, he, he has said, is seen as sort of a, a tool to get the pro- the other provinces to, to sort of take Alberta seriously and come to the table and negotiate. Um, my colleague D- Jason Markusoff wrote a long yes. piece about how it's Alberta great. is basically taking a page from the Quebec playbook and basically, you know, saber rattling and kind of, you know, dragging their tin cup up and down the bars and making a lot of noise because mm. they feel ignored. They feel like their concerns are not being taken seriously. And Kenny is sort of right at the mm. nexus of that. He's capitalizing on all of that anger and resentment and kind of wanting people to see him as the guy who will fight this battle that um, apparently a large swath of Albertans feel has been inadequately fought the last few right. years by the Notley government. And and it seems to me, you know, that there's even the recent voter fraud allegations that came to light just like a few there's days There's been some ago. weird stuff going on yeah. in that race. Yeah. yeah. During Kenny's leadership run in 2017, it doesn't seem to be making a difference, really, in 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 the po- in the early polling, um, and that people are genuinely, and he's he's tapping into this, concerned about what's going on at the ground level, which is their jobs and the economy, and you know, getting that rolling again. Now, there's some interesting what ifs. If either one wins, how will that play at the federal level? So, if Kenny gets in as premier, what does that do for the federal liberals? Um, Sheer on Thursday, he was. Yep. Um, he was at a rally. He was at a rally with Jason Kenney. And um, so, you know, that would be an interesting alliance along with Doug Ford in there. 
I mean, yeah. that would present a challenge. Certainly, yeah. I mean, Trudeau had some very friendly premiers uh, a few years ago in virtually all the, the most populous and most economically productive parts of the country. He had Rachel Notley, who he could get a much better hearing with than he ever will with, with Jason Kenney. He had Kathleen Wynne. He had Philippe Couillard. He had uh, liberals galore in Atlantic Canada. And one by one, they've been picked off uh, for, I mean, partly just because governments get old and yep. they change. Partly because they were just unpopular, because they were doing unpopular things. Partly because of economic circumstances. But he is, uh, yeah, he's looking at skilled politicians in Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, uh, um, uh, Francois Legault in yes. Quebec, who is maybe not as hostile as those first two, but not nearly as friendly as liberal Philippe Couillard no. was. And many of them have run on explicitly anti-Trudeau anti-carbon tax, uh, anti-whatever-Ottawa-is-doing platforms. And when people are anxious, that plays well. I mean, we saw that in the Ontario Mm -hmm. election, right? And and it's maybe somewhat analogous, you know, you were sort of flicking at kind of the various, I think what Preston Manning used to call the bozo eruptions in the UCP campaign, and it doesn't seem to have made much of a dent. Similarly, during the Ontario election last year, there were lots of hiccups and kerfuffles and scandals, and it did not make a difference. When people are angry and anxious, and they see one party as the, you know, the finger in the eye of whatever establishment is making them angry, off they go. And and it, yeah. it Alberta may have that moment right now and Kenny may be that guy. Like yeah. there there do seem to be some parallels to Ontario. Mm, yeah. It doesn't matter who's elected, they can't change the world price of oil. They cannot, just exactly. by sheer force of will, get a pipeline built, as we were saying. Um, they cannot, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that politicians can't reverse. But people like to feel like their politicians are fighting for them, yeah. even in and, hopeless causes. And that they can relate to them at their, and they're, you know, on the on the ground with them, you know, in that fight. And it's weird. I mean, Jason Kenney's been a politician literally his entire life. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's you know, he, he talks a good game, but this is all he has ever done, at least as an adult, yeah. is, is elected politics. So it's kind of funny that he is the you know, the populist. Yeah, exactly. That stick is, up for the people that is guy, a, but it seems to be yeah, working very well. Yeah, I'm one well. of you kind of thing. I'd, I also find it funny, like, there's just, like, Notley and, and, and Trudeau alliance thing that's been talked about. But, like, where's the other liberal candidate? <laughs> he must be like, well, I can't use that line. I heard Notley describe it in an interview as, and I think she's maybe trying to walk a careful line here given the temperature in Alberta. She said that her relationship with Trudeau was neither an alliance nor a war because that has sort of been the territory she's been trying to occupy, you know, really pushing the issue when she needed to with pipelines. But there's more of a natural alliance there between her party. I mean, you could see maybe that in Alberta, NDP is is like a federal liberal right, a little a bit point, like there's yeah. a little yeah, bit she's of pretty right wing for a new for a new Democrat yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Um, well we'll see what happens Angus Reid released I think a, it was a public opinion poll just this morning with the UCP still with a decent lead over the NDP by 13 points um, NDP are uh, I think still re- hoping to 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 find momentum in young voters women educated women especially. It will. It, we're we're doing an episode on um, in no, on no second chances this Monday. Um, sort of the last woman standing because it's about the 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 sole twelve female first ministers, and that not one of them um, have been reelected. So it would mean that if Jason Kenney wins, it would mean not a single woman is at that table, which presents a whole different set of. Mm-hmm. Issues. Yeah, that's another thing that's happened. Actually, we were—I think we had six female yes. first ministers yes. out of thirteen, yep. counting the the 
territory, 14, I guess, uh, a few years ago. And yeah, I think we will be down to zero if yep. Notley doesn't win. That's yep. quite surprising. In, a, in academia, like we've all heard the glass ceiling idea, you know, the, the fact that there's sort of a point beyond which women have a hard time rising. But in academia, they also talk about the glass cliff, the idea yes. that women in both corporate and political contexts are more likely to be brought in as kind of a Hail Mary when it's like, well, things are super screwed up here anyway. Let's so just throw you, you into in? the job. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then there's Clean this cliff that they very swiftly fall off of because they're often brought into more difficult circumstances yeah. in the first place. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a it's a phenomenon worth thinking about yeah. in the context of how quickly um, the gender balance of the first ministers in Canada yeah. has changed. Has changed, yeah. Okay, let's move on. Facebook made moves this week to ban white nationalists in Canada from using its platform. This includes Faith Goldie, a far-right personality who ran for Toronto mayor last year. Was it last year? Yes, last year. As well as the Canadian Nationalist Front and their leader, Kevin Goudreau from Peterborough, the Aryan Strike Force, Wolves of Odin, Soldiers of Odin and the Canadian infidels. The social media platform released a statement on on Monday saying its long-standing policy and o- policies and overall vision condemns extremists who who spew out hate speech online and per- perpetuate organized crime or organize hate. Um, this announcement comes 2 weeks after the organization said it would crack down on white supremacist content in general banning a whole bunch of materials online. And and that announcement was made following the, the devastating terror attack two weeks earlier in New Zealand, which killed 50 people and was live streamed on Facebook, which is insane. The alleged attacker published videos and posts in the lead up to that shooting and encouraged people to tune into his feed. He started it on Reddit, moved to Facebook, and then it was uploaded a bunch of times to YouTube. It took uh, which is crazy, like 17 minutes for Facebook to notice a terror attack was being streamed on their platform. And um, they ultimately, they took it down and prevented hundreds of thousands of more versions from being uploaded. But it was still, it's still the main platform that it was being used to, to stream it. So <sighs> banning these Canadians, this decision, my feeling on this is like, and I'm sure this is a common thread, yeah, sure. Facebook was one of the more is one of the more well known platforms, and um, where these individuals circulate hateful expression. But they, do, I mean, it's not their only platform they go to to do this. There are many dark holes on the internet, much probably bigger with bigger reach well, than even Facebook. Facebook itself. I think BuzzFeed and the Star had a story like the yeah. day after these groups were banned, something like half of them were back on. They had recreated their pages under different or very similar names. <laughs> yeah, it's real. There was a whack-a-mole. An, there was an ad popping up for Faith Goldie immediately. Yeah, my feeling is sort of like this ridiculous fence sitting where it is like an impossible game of whack-a-mole. I still think the gesture and the attempt is important. Yeah. Um, I do Symbolic. sometimes worry that these people, much like when you block jerks on Twitter, they use it as a badge of honor. They they, yes. they use it as a – especially for these kind of very um, overtly kind of – anti-social, anti-establishment groups. They use it as, see, we're getting under the skins yes. of, you know, these liberal tears, point. blah, 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 whatever. It it becomes sort of bragging rights for them. Yeah. Um, I still think, especially with, with the Facebook platform where your audience is bigger and I would think on average a little less um, like savvy and super tapped in than your Twitter power users, mm. it's probably important to stem the tide of this like just sewage flowing out, but it is an impossible game of whack-a-mole. It is, and it seems like kind of a um, 
a downstream a, a downstream approach versus I mean the whole problem with something like Facebook is the actual algorithm it has that it that it feeds you information that already feeds you stuff that you've that already, you already responded to responded to and believe in and it feeds your narrative whether that's good or bad um, and, and and provides you with misinformation and so it's actually the algorithm that's sort of the the problem of all of this. It's not, I mean, yeah, but I agree. There's something symbolic to banning these individuals and saying like, we won't tolerate this kind of behavior on our platform. Twitter, I don't think followed suit. I don't think that they, they didn't ban. No, that was not, I mean, Twitter has sort of had a perpetual massive problem Mm -hmm. with this. Anecdotally, they, they look to be in like a granular way, getting a little better, at least responding to reported accounts and things like that. But like this whole idea of deplatforming, like you made the point, Sarah, removing one platform does not erase someone's public existence, and it's pretty darn easy for them to find another right? one and a There's fresh so audience. Many. There's so and, many and others. There have been, I mean, since long before social media, there have been massively racist organizations. You know, the yeah. Ku Klux Klan didn't require Facebook to organize its exactly. meetups, and you know, more recently, the Heritage Front and skinhead groups and neo Nazis and whatnot. They they were able to organize, yeah. but I think. Maybe where there is a difference is in putting these ideas in front of people at vulnerable times that in order to previously in order to organize a march, you had to organize a meeting. You had to get people's phone numbers mm. and call them and get like them the all together. Was higher, yeah, right? it was just yeah. there was more, more more friction, more right. organizational overhead in in just having a having an organization, frankly. And now you throw up a Facebook group and people around the world can join it. And and you don't really have to be like that committed, but you can kind of be just exactly. a bit yeah, intrigued. And get it a little low barrier feeding entry. into yes. your head, just a little More. bit here, a little bit there. Right. Or you're interested in, a, you know, a, a, and this, I mean, this is not just about, about, white supremacist organizations. This is about Islamic radical oh, organizations. And, and anti-vaxxers or whatever Anti-vaxxers, communist revolutionaries, people who want to believe that... Uh, the, flat, the earth is flat. The flat earth, yeah, whatever. Yeah. All, but there are... there. These ideas can be put in front of people at critical moments, not deliberately, but over and over and over again until they go into their heads at a critical moment well, and then suddenly something changes. I was I was listening to a I think it was maybe the daily. Here I am again referencing the daily. But it was it was someone explaining, yeah, like it, the way these platforms sort of target these vulnerable people is okay, so yeah, maybe you decide to watch a video on on the earth being flat. But then you get into something a little bit more dangerous. It's like and then a gateway it's a, drug. It is. Mm-hmm. And it just gets it just gets increasingly more divisive and um, dangerous and uh, misguided. So it's, I think of it too like the way uh, and perhaps this is a gross stereotype but the way inner city gangs might recruit vulnerable yeah. kids who will feel unprotected unless they have a group to belong to. I think there's a direct analogy to people who feel disaffected um you know, just kind of this this kind of vague sense of of anger and and yeah. not fitting in, and then oh, you click like on a Facebook group, and yeah. all of a sudden your feed is filling with stuff that maybe some of it sort of makes sense to you, and all of a sudden there's a sense of community, and there's a sense of, and we know those algorithms are designed to surface the most inflammatory response inducing stuff, yeah. and so then all of a sudden you've you've jumped into this pool with a particular kind of tenor to it and you have a sense of belonging and that's right. really really powerful for people and oh. that's what makes it so insidious if if it's for a negative cause you know yeah yeah exactly i mean do you think there's an argument that because um 
yeah, Facebook is a, uh, is a private company. It has a right to ban whoever it wants from its platform. But it's so involved in the public discourse that is it right that it has this that it has the editorial decision making power to decide who it can ban? I mean, where's the line that's going to be crossed in terms of like, well, that person seems white nationalist ish. Yeah, I mean, defining, we were talking yeah. about, about religious symbols last week. Yes, and right. Bill 21 in Quebec. And it's the same sort of thing. You cross a line between yeah. angry militant into advocating violence and but leaving it up to a company based elsewhere, incidentally, to determine when that line has been crossed in this particular culture and what exactly do all these references mean right. and, and, like, and who are you uh, associating with. I mean, yeah, that's that's in sympathy to Facebook oh, and Twitter yeah. and everybody else. That's really, really hard. Right. right. And it takes a, a depth of understanding that might be unreasonable to ask it. Yes, yes. So I think, you know, they can, they can do their part as a private right. platform to... You know, try to maintain some sort of standards, but I think at putting it all on them is, is, is it's not going to work. I wonder if it gets to a point, though, where, yes, Facebook is a private company, but if its reach is so massive and so influential that those kind of entities need to be defined as some other kind of organism and, and mm. regulated in some other kind of way. Like, yeah. like Facebook is not like Nike. It's just not. And neither is Twitter it, and neither is Instagram. Like, they're just not. There are no other... I can't think of another platform or corporation on earth that has that kind of reach, not even like a Disney or, or whatever mm-hmm. kind of massive media conglomerate you want to point to that is in people's hands and, and, and I think too broadcast to them by people they know, like we all would know people in our families who are not super internet savvy. And I hear it all the time. Oh, this showed up in my feed <laughs> from someone who thinks it was presented to them by someone mm-hmm. they trust and they like. And so therefore it comes with this kind of aura of legitimacy or worth considering that is an entirely different thing than another corporation that you brush up against as a private citizen. Like that is a different level of yes. influence. I think there's a, there's also a debate to be had given the benign good uses that politicians put well, these services to. Exactly. And they've we've had politicians involved in court cases about blocking people on Twitter because it means that citizens don't have access to things that their representatives right. are saying. Right. If, you know, I'm an American cabinet secretary doing a Facebook Live uh, talking about stuff my department is doing, and there are people who are banned from Facebook and they can't see it, I think there are constitutional questions about that. Right. The degree to which these services are part of the, the public square. Well, it is also going to be, you know, it's interesting too because po- uh, political parties, as we near the f- federal election, are certainly going to be using these platforms to advertise and target. And it's troubling that they are also the ones that are making the rules around regulating some of these companies. Um, But yeah, so it leads me to, on on Monday, there was a major report by the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, which was released, indicating that Canada should expect some sort of foreign interference in this election um, this fall. So the summary states, we, we judge it very likely that Canadian voters will encounter some form of foreign cyber interference related to t- the 2019 federal election. However, at this time, it is improbable that this foreign cyber interference will be of the scale of Russian activity against the 2016 United States presidential election. Karina Gould, the minister responsible for uh, election integrity, held a press conference afterwards. She said the government was very much considering regulating platforms like Google, Facebook, Twitter in the lead up to the elections, which is why I just find it interesting. Like, 
it's a hard balance for, for parties because they actually want to be using these platforms to do some of the stuff we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's hard to know how a law, um, how you would implement a law like a privacy or a hate speech law or regulate these companies. Also, as you were saying, Shannon, they're not defined by geography. You can't be like, okay, Facebook Canada, we're going to put in this law. But, you know, it's a it's, borderless it's, it's entity. It's a borderless entity. Um, so it makes it really hard. The closest thing that people are pointing to is the GDPR in Europe, which does a good job. It's, there's the accountability part, I think, which is really important for companies that knowing that there will be ramifications if, you know, something bad happens. I think that's the point people are, are saying is important with regulation, but yeah. We're, we're just, also, we're just not that big a market. Yeah. And so what our government wants these companies to do here, uh, they, I mean, as as we saw with, with Google and uh, restrictions on election advertising, they just said, well, you know what? It's not worth it. We're, we're just going to not take political ads yeah, because that's right. that's we can't be bothered to try that, to, yeah. to, to live up to the standards that you're setting. And at some point, you know, the Facebook, first of all, or other companies on that scale might say, we're not going to bother doing it at all, or, oh, well, we're just going to cut off accounts. We're not going to have accounts that, of a certain type right. because in in this jurisdiction because it's not worth the trouble to us to do it the way you want us to do it. Yeah. And so, I mean, in Canada, our federal government is a really big deal. Yeah. To Facebook, uh, Canada's <laughs> federal government is not necessarily yeah. that big a deal. Yeah. I also, I know, I'm not sure how high you'd have to set the bar, too, because if we're talking about things like, like hate speech, I mean, what we know from Russian interference in the U.S. is that it, it wasn't necessarily rising to anything remotely that level. What their point was was just to just to up the temperature, just to make mm. everyone angry mm-hmm. all the time, and to be introducing divisive issues and divisive takes on those issues into people's feeds. That's never going to cross into hate speech territory if yeah. it's just right. kind of innuendo and just sort of riling yeah. people up. If if the point is just to make an electorate angry and angry at each other, yeah. how are you going to police that? And how, how are you, you going to that? differentiate that from, you know, um, legitimate partisan commentary? It, it's just, yes. it's incredibly subtle and pernicious. I mean, yeah. it's sort of darkly brilliant. If you think about it, if you're a foreign entity that wants oh, yeah. to screw with an electorate, just make them super furious at each other mm-hmm. all the time to the point where they can't even see normal issues anymore or discern their own best interest because it's just this cloud of rage and proxy. Like yeah. it's, it's genius. It's a very asymmetrical warfare type situation. Yeah. And like one false statement that takes 12 seconds to write up and three minutes to make a meme out of, then to debunk can take a whole afternoon right. and people still And debunking is boring, right? People yeah. don't like it. It's, it's not, not fun. Sexy. Yeah. Uh, it's not an issue that's going to stop over the next couple of months, so we'll, I'm sure we'll be speaking about it uh, in weeks to come. That's all for us today. Twitter handles, please. I am at David Reevely. And I am at S. Proudfoot. And I am at Turnbull Sarah. We'll see you next time. has been around for thousands of years, but Canadians are increasingly turning to new methods such as mobile wallets and contactless solutions to make everyday payments. No matter what the future of payments holds, Interact will be there to help Canadians transact with confidence across multiple platforms and devices. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.